Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm Dr. Norman Horn, and today with me is my great honor to introduce Mr. Stephen Kent, the author of a book that I have really enjoyed recently called How the Force Can Fix the World. And so this is a little bit of an unusual episode for us. This is a Christian podcast, but we're going to be talking about Star Wars today. I met Stephen back at Freedom Fest about six or seven months ago or so and had a great time talking with him. And we've been planning for some time to do a podcast together. And so we're going to talk about the book. We're going to talk about some recent Star Wars shows like Andor and how politics and morality fit into it all. So Stephen, welcome to the show today. Norman, thanks for having me on. Awesome. I'm so glad that we were able to do this at long last. It seems like we've taken some time to get here, but we are finally together. Everything happens as the force wills it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Oh, but it's been really good and fun to enjoy, in some sense, a rather renaissance of Star Wars material that... (laughs) You can't deny that there's been some really fun things happening there. But before we kind of get into that, tell us a little bit about yourself and where you come from, your background, and so people kind of know who you are. Yeah, it's been a winding road, but I I suppose I started my career out of school in political organizing and working for free market and libertarian causes based out of Washington, D.C., so kind of getting involved in the libertarian think tank world and going to conferences and being an activist and all that kind of stuff. And around 2015, 2016, I started a Star Wars and politics podcast called Beltway Banthas. It was sort of my way to learn how to do interviews and practice my skills as a communicator, but also meet some interesting people in the world of politics who are huge Star Wars fans. Because I basically just had always rooted my political convictions, actually, in, in a lot of what I learned from Star Wars. And I wanted to meet <laughs> other, I wanted to meet other people it. who felt that way as well. And so Beltway Banthas ran for about four and a half years. So it was a pretty darn successful podcast and dovetailed into a book deal that I had in around 2020 with Hachette's Center Street imprint. And I had pitched them a sort of lessons learned from Beltway Banthas called How the Force Can Fix the World, Lessons on Life, Liberty, and Happiness from a Galaxy Far, Far Away. And that came out last Thanksgiving. And it has been a just a wild ride for this political activist and libertarian Star Wars fanatic that is me. Yeah. I'm so glad that people are enjoying the book. Yeah, it was really fun to read. And, and in fact, I think it's particularly appropriate to bring you on our podcast because you even bring in a lot of Christian influences. You're pretty broad-based in what you talk about, and I totally understand that. But it's obvious that you're kind of leaning on your own faith in this respect. Yeah, how can you not? You know, Star Wars is littered. I suppose littered is the negative word, but uh, it is just, it is teeming. (laughs) Yeah, it is replete with all sorts of theology and spiritual influences. And everybody who watches Star Wars with a critical eye knows this about the force and the force's will, the light side and the dark side. This is George Lucas just scouring comparative religion for all sorts of different spiritual aspects, ranging from Judeo-Christian belief down to sort of Eastern Taoism and all that kind of stuff. So it's all there. 
and you can't really not see it. But also when I was writing a book on the political foundations or applicability of Star Wars, it was pretty important to me to write it as a Christian Mm -hmm. and to both share my walk with Star Wars as a believer, but also to, I suppose, be very clear about the author's intent being George Lucas. I actually read a Christian blog that did a review of my book and they, they, they liked it, but they also were, they criticized it because my book did not sort of take the position of like, you know, the one true God. Yeah. But it, <laughs> um, and I was like, oh, you know what? George Lucas didn't... It's like he's not C.S. Lewis. Way. Come on. Yeah, so, George like, Lucas didn't <laughs> intend it that way. So it's yeah. not my place to yeah, say it's, it's a fair. Christian story. It has Christian relevance. Yeah. Yeah. So, But let's dig deeper into the book itself then because I think you have some particular aims that you wanted to set out with the book. So kind of describe, first of all, you've kind of given us its origin story, if you will, episode one, per se. Uh, well, okay, that was sort of a bad joke, but <laughs> well, I'm sure we'll hit many dad jokes today as Star Wars fans go. But you described the origin story, but what were your kind of aims in producing this rather, it's not even that long. It's maybe what, six chapters? Six main chapters? Yeah, it's, it's uh, I'm trying to remember, eight, eight chapters. Eight okay. chapters altogether. My aim with the book was basically to take on political polarization and political enmity in our culture, the incredibly divisive nature of our politics today, the polarization between Team Red and Team Blue, and then everybody else who's getting sort of left out in that tribal conflict. And to basically say that there are many ways that you can solve political and cultural division. And one of those ways that I believe very strongly in is shared stories and things that we have in common. There used to be a lot of things that stitched together American life and provided a buffer between neighbors and political opinion. A lot of those things used to be clubs and civic organizations. It used to be the fact that you would see all of your neighbors and folks nearby at church every week on the pews. You just sort of knew one another and had things in common. And then there are also just the sort of the powerful binding stories that we tell each other. The Founding Fathers is a story that we have and that we share and that we are losing <laughs> every yeah. single every single day that the culture war drags on. But then there are also just sort of underpinning myths of the Western world, whether it's Greek myths and sort of like the stories of Ulysses and stuff like that. Like those are all sort of things that underpin our culture. And Star Wars is introduced in 1977 up until today as a modern myth and something that has helped us define things like light and dark and the story of how a nobody becomes a hero for the 20th and 21st century. And that's actually a really beautiful thing. And I make the argument in the book that this kind of shared story if you treat it seriously, is actually a way to make the culture better. I think that's really, really interesting to kind of go that direction because, yeah, the shared story aspect is super important for us. But yet, it's also sort of true that some people kind of want to insert themselves into the story and see their even political opponents as being the evil empire at that point. Yeah, of course. That's totally natural. (laughs) Yeah, but I think you kind of try to stave that off in the book even with citing Paul at one point, you know, the battle isn't against flesh and blood, mm-hmm. but that 
this sort of shared story then is an introduction to some ideas that are more important than inserting yourself into the story and seeing your political opponents as being that empire, as being the separatists or whatever. Yeah. You mentioned Paul, and I think I also would draw on Alexander Soikskanitskin. I can never say that. that Solzhenstein. Yeah, that, <laughs> yeah, hor- that, horrible, yeah. that horrible Russian name, but you know how he writes in the Gulag Archipelago, yep. that the, yep. the line separating good and evil passes not through state, nor between classes, but between every person's human heart. It's a line right through the human heart. And yeah. you know, if you get so focused on political parties and affiliation being the designator of good or evil, you're going to be set up for a lifetime of conflict and tribalism. And I, I just sort of have always looked at Star Wars seriously as a text which is telling us this story and this fact about the human condition. And so I zero in on the book on seven or eight principles, uh, values or virtues, if you will, that could make the world a better place if we were actually living in them. It's humility, empathy, courage, hope, redemption, balance, which is a big Star Wars one, and and choice or or free will. And so these are the things that sort of pull the book together. And they're all things that I learned in my walk as a Christian and I learned in Sunday school. But I think in a way, almost more than my Sunday school teacher was able to instill them in me, Star Wars really did as a piece of popular culture. And it kind of wasn't really till I was an adult that I understood it on a deeper level. And I certainly didn't write this book as a libertarian manifesto of which to like badger your Democrat and Republican (laughs) friends and use Star Wars as a weapon, but mostly just to look at it as a way to build friendships and build compassion for other people. Because that's how I've always interpreted this story. I think probably my two favorite chapters in the book, it was really one of the first ones, humility, I thought was just, it was really well put. And then redemption. So I kind of want to zero in Mm -hmm. on a couple of those pieces real quick. Your humility chapter, it's really central, I think, to the overarching argument that you're trying to make, which again, is this idea that we can bridge some of these differences by using these shared stories and demonstrating that we do hold common values together upon which we can build relationships and interact in a peaceful manner. I love that. And the humility portion to me, it was a really important part of that to know that your own mind is incomplete Mm -hmm. and to know its own limitations and to not get into the hubristic factors that cause so Uh much of the downfall of various characters that we see. Yeah. And I think your libertarians in the audience will appreciate this on two levels, which I've always been drawn towards libertarians because I think that there is sort of an inherent humility to the libertarian mindset about the way that the world is ordered. We sort of have a built-in ideological skepticism towards yep. centralized government, your ability to plan things meticulously that you know a central planner cannot really know how a society is built. It's better dispersed amongst individuals who all have a wide range of expertise and experiences. And then also, I have always found there to be a certain level of humility to people who believe in God. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think that there's probably the typical libertarian secular atheist is probably one of the more abrasive figures that I've ever come across because there's just this incredible certainty about the way that the world is and isn't. Whereas I've always sort of viewed belief in God as an exercise in humility. It's sort of an I don't know sort of deal. That's what faith is. 
faith is. I, I can't prove it, but I really believe this. And I really see the hand of God in the world. And I guess this is sort of going backwards towards the point of the chapter, but I saw in episode one, A Phantom Menace, The Phantom mm-hmm. Menace, the virtue of humility most largely played out by Queen Amidala, Padme of the Naboo. And chapter one is an exploration of how Queen Amidala or Padme solves the invasion by the Trade Federation of Naboo as a child queen. A lot of people actually didn't realize this watching the movie, but Padme in that movie is 14 years old. She is one of many Naboo monarchs who are elected children. Naboo has a political culture that very much values the innocence and humility of kids and believes that older candidates for office tend to be more rigid, ideological, and unopen to thinking outside of the box. And so Naboo, therefore, elects very young people. And I was kind of taken aback by that when I realized she's meant to be 14 in that movie. And so I kind of went on this journey of going, all right, well, if she's a child queen in that movie and solves this problem, how did she do it in a way that maybe a grown adult would have not? And it kind of wound my way. I found my way towards Matthew 18, three to four, verses three to four, where Christ says, truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. I didn't like even go into writing this chapter to try to make that point, but I found my way towards it. And I guess we can unpack a little bit how we get there. Yeah, that's really, that was kind of where I was hoping to go in the end. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's pretty great. Sometimes you have to get really nerdy on this stuff to hit these deeper points. And I was aware that back in episode one that, yeah, she's meant to be this kind of teenage monarch. But you still, you see maturity in taking advice and the humility of going to the Gungans even at that point and requesting their help, even though they were the true like second-class citizens of Naboo, living completely differently, you know, and talking differently than their above-water... <laughs> peoples. And you pointed it out. I thought it was like, oh, that's fantastic. That's so great. (laughs) Yeah. And and something that's sort of in the background of the story, but I mean, basically the Gungans are sort of in the same position as an indigenous culture. The colonists being the humans of Naboo come there from outside their world and they tangle, they have a conflict and they push sort of the Gungans off of the land and beneath the waters. And the Gungans obviously really resent them. And the Naboo really distrust and resent the Gungans. They have a huge divide between their societies. But the Gungans' primary bone to pick with the Naboo is they believe them to be snobby and they believe them to look down on them. Boss Nass in that movie, he says, they think they're so smart. They think their brain's so big. (laughs) We don't care about the Naboo. And then later when Padme does this act of humility for their help. She kneels before him. She says, we both come from equal and great societies. We need your help, I beg you. And he says, and he laughs in that moment, he says, you said don't think you're better than the Gungans? I like this. Like that was all he needed to hear was just that, okay, you don't think you're better than us? (laughs) Because that was the reason that they distrust and dislike each other. And so much of our political culture 
is rotted by that very thing. Oh, those people think they're better than us. Those inner city folks or those metropolitan millennials think that they're better than us out here in the farmlands. Like That's why we don't like them and distrust them. I feel that all the time, sort of like a political enmity just because I think another faction looks down on me from the ivory tower. And then so I was kind of working my way through this and I was just thinking about Padme's humility and what it takes to do that. And that's how I found that verse in Matthew and came across it. And I was Mm -hmm. thinking like as a Christian, is Christ saying to his disciples that they need to be like children in the kingdom of heaven because they need to be naive like children are. Children are naive. Do they need to be blind to threats and danger? No. Or is it that they just know that they need help? They know that they need a savior. And maybe we can talk about this because I'm curious how you have come to understand that verse because I, I think your average atheist would read that passage and they go, well, yeah, obviously they need to be like children because they need to be dumb to follow yeah. <laughs> follow Christ or believe in all of this hoo-ha. I just, I love that passage because children know that they need a savior. That's why they have parents and people who look after them. Yeah, I think you're, we're on the right track. There's one word that comes to mind as to the way that Matthew 18 plays out and what's important there. Why children to begin with? There's this facet of openness. And in certain literature, you'll even, my wife will even talk about, you know, bids for connection. And really the foundation of our faith is relational. It's not transactional. It's not even legal per se. It's about a relationship. And so the child knows perhaps better than all of us because their focus is on developing these relationships so constantly. They're so interested in people and getting to know them and understanding who they are. They're constantly learning both language and culture around them because they're just not experienced. They don't have that knowledge. So they're focused in on the relationships. Let the little children come to me, as Christ says, is his own bid for connection, if you will. Mm -hmm. And so that humility of recognizing that we just need people in order to exist. And that by cutting others off from each other, that's the danger zone. Is I think where perhaps I would kind of lean toward in terms of further interpretive efforts there. I think that that's great. And I build on a little bit in this chapter on sort of, you know, when people talk about sort of your God-given talents or your God-given gifts, how children versus more prideful adults might think about the things in life that they're particularly good at. Mm -hmm. And so if you're thinking about how a child monarch, and I'm not talking about like some like Russian czar who's like 11 (laughs) years old and, you know, butchers people because their advisor tell them to, but like, you know, give them like the best possible scenario. A child ruler, how they might rule. They'd be curious They would have advisors around them that give them lots of input. They would listen to the best ideas, let them rise. And they also just wouldn't be too prideful because they're kids. Like Everything that they have was sort of just given to them. It's almost like a gift. It's a privilege. Mm -hmm. And there's this bit in the book about how I was kind of trying to figure out the difference between when someone says they have a gift versus when someone says they sort of have a talent. Because a talent is something that is sort of cultivated. It's something that you discover 
It's something that like a teacher can sort of bring out in you and foster. But when you say, I'm good at something, maybe I'm strong in the force like Luke is, it's sort of natural and given to him. You have a gift. And if you're saying you have a gift, who gave it to you? It's something that you have to be humble about when you have a gift. It's something that you have to give back and share with the world because you didn't do anything to deserve it. And I happen to believe that when someone has a gift, particularly in the realm of talents or virtues, it was given to them by God. And it is incumbent upon them to then share that with the world because after all, it was given to them freely. Yeah, to use it for the benefit of others is, I mean, that's just the nature of all sorts of different ways in which we think about our interactions with the world, whether it's commerce, whether it's artistic venture or something to that effect, or even the ability to just think clearly about theology, (laughs) hopefully. And I hope that that's something that we should all be kind of looking to cultivate these types of both intellectual virtues and physical virtues, etc. Because in some sense, we're all endowed with them. All of us have something. And you can even create them. (laughs) You can choose them even sometimes. Those are important kind of facets of what we can become. And uh, all of us want to see ourselves in the Star Wars story as being part of that heroic venture. And we kind of come at it almost with this faith-based belief even that, yeah, I could be that guy. I want to have that level of courage. I want to be someone who's training to do good in this regard. I think that's cool. And I think being that person and our innate desire to be that hero, sort of at the center of the story, doing the hero's journey and all that. Mm -hmm. That's why most of us, I think, look to Luke Skywalker and the originals (laughs) as being that focal point. I think some readers of the book were like, wow, he's really starting this book off with the prequels and episode (laughs) (laughs) like gutsy move. But the chapter ends really on, I think, the most exciting and commonly known anecdote that I believe to be drawn from the Christian experience in Star Wars, which is Luke Skywalker in the original film taking that shot on the Death Star. There's this sort of arc that he goes through in that movie early on when he's training with a lightsaber and Obi-Wan Kenobi tells him his eyes can deceive him, don't trust them. And to just let the force move and let him like learn to block those laser bolts without being able to see. He has to let go so that the force can guide him. And when I was thinking about my own Christian journey, my own journey as a believer, this is the area in which I am just sort of the biggest failure. I struggle so much with, I guess what my mom always told me, and your mom probably told you this as well, I don't know. But you know, let Jesus take the wheel, let go and let God. I mean, this is very sort of boilerplate church Dixie Chicks kind of stuff that you've just got to be willing to let Jesus take the wheel in certain parts of your life. You get a job offer, you get an opportunity. Are you going to prey on it? Or are you going to just take the opportunity, take the job because you know that it is the best thing for you? Maybe the money is better or maybe it's going to, it sounds cool or prestigious, but have you thought about whether or not it factors into God's plan for your life? Mm. Have you even paused to do that. And I struggle with this immensely because I'm trying to build a life, not like take gambles, you know? And the more that I just think about Luke's journey towards taking that shot on the Death Star, where he turns off his targeting computer and actually embraces letting go and letting the force will him to take that impossible shot 
and land it perfectly. This is the journey that we are all on. And to have humility in order to do that, you have to believe that you are sort of an instrument of other things beyond your own greatness for you to blow up the Death Star in your life. (laughs) Well, and it's so interesting to kind of consider because we do hear this or variations on this theme throughout our Sunday school experience on our Sunday morning sermons and whatnot. But sometimes it takes connecting with these other stories to draw those parallel lessons into focus. I think that's something that's really even comes out very strongly in the book in a lot of different ways too. And that's why I continue to recommend it to all of our listeners and all our friends here. I think that if you enjoyed our discussion on humility just now, there's so much more that you can get from the book. It's super fun to read. It's not a heavy lift, but you'll just enjoy if you enjoy Star Wars, you're going to enjoy the book. It's just the, it's the reality. <laughs> so I really appreciate what you've done with the book, Stephen. And at this point, though, I want to kind of shift gears a little bit. And we're going to... It's now time for the spoiler alert. Ta-da! <laughs> so uh, at this point, we're going to say spoiler alert because we're going to talk about some more recent stuff that's been happening in Star Wars and the more recent shows. If you have not watched things like Andor or The Bad Batch or whatnot and you don't want any spoilers, stop now or forever hold your peace or whatever. We're <laughs> <laughs> ready to go with some of this new stuff, Stephen? Let's do it. People love the new stuff. <laughs> oh my gosh, yeah. <laughs> well, and I think maybe the first thing we could talk about here is like, holy cow, Andor was an absolute wild, amazing ride. I mean, it was the slow burn, but there was so much in there to unpack and to kind of grasp is furthering the Star Wars story, but also just looking at our heroes in a way that's a little different (laughs) and the whole world a little different as a result. Yeah, and Andor is really fantastic. Star Wars, actually, I would say it is not a wild ride. It is kind of what you said about it being a slow burn. And it's a very meticulous ride, but it's one of the more... Not grim, but like it's a series that takes Star Wars very, very seriously. As yeah. if Star Wars were Game of Thrones or <laughs> Mad Men or just like a very, very meticulous drama. It's a really, really great show. And I understand 100%. Like a lot of fans out there are tired with kind of Star Wars content or duds and mishandlings in the Disney era. And I'm sympathetic to that. But... Yeah. Andor is not one of those things. And the more people who have given it a try quickly realize and send me texts saying, yep, you're right. This is fantastic. (laughs) So it's a good show. I loved Rogue One when it came out. Everyone did. Everyone did. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I I enjoyed it more than... Because I think it hit what? It was 2016 or 2017? Uh, That's correct. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I enjoyed it more than Episode 7 in many respects. In part because I just loved the characters were just so much fun. And Cassie and Andor being one of this kind of like really interesting introduced character that never before been seen. Although you could arguably, for the real nerdy ones among us, you could probably see the illusions of Jyn Erso and Cassie and Andor to Kyle Katarn and Jan Ors uh, oh, from the... Uh, yeah, I just dropped yeah. one on you there. Yeah, you just but, dropped one. Yeah, <laughs> You just outed yourself big time. I know, I'm... I, Dude, I'm more of a nerd than... Well, I'm a huge Star Wars nerd. I know way more than I let on at times. So, <laughs> You know, the folks behind the video game teams for yeah. 
these games featuring the character Cal Kestis. Oh, yeah. They've been talking about how he's sort of meant to fill that Kyle Katarn void in the canon. Really? Yeah, yeah. There's a couple interviews where they talk about the new Cal Kestis characters sort of being in that vein, and even the actor is aware of it, and he's excited about it. They're definitely then taking like different aspects of the characters from the old EU that got blown up, Yep. And then kind of reincorporating them into these other characters, which is, I mean, that that's pretty cool in and of itself. I mean, yeah. it's, a lot of characters have made it out of yeah. the EU and been completely reincorporated, like Thrawn. Thrawn in And particular. then, you know, they're taking, taking the things that are worth keeping. I, I think the EU is a goldmine of oh, great yeah. material. And it's pretty darn clear that they are just going through it and really finding what works and what doesn't because... Yeah. Y'all, there's a lot of garbage. <laughs> there's there's a lot of really, really ridiculous stuff there. <laughs> oh, sure. Um, but it's some yeah. of it's popcorn level, but you know, some of it's just it's good stuff. But I'm glad you mentioned Rogue One though, because I mean <laughs> Rogue One stands out as one of those Disney Star Wars movies that is like proof, kind of like the Mandalorian. Yeah. They're like, they can do this. They and can do it well. They can do this. It's just boy that the batting average is <laughs> batting average is sort of getting to George Lucas levels of not a strong average. <laughs> so so Andor though, the show is kind of like a pseudo origin story on some level and on multiple counts in many respects, right? So you got like you begin with the Andor character in his home on uh oh shoot, I'm forgetting the Name it starts with an F, right? Ferrix, Ferrix, on Ferrix, and uh, mm-hmm. but then they're also getting these flashbacks and done the right way to his recovery from a planet that was ravaged by the Empire, and then he gets picked up and essentially adopted into another family, which is an interesting kind of like, I mean, it's just an interesting aspect of his character. I mean, adoption is a weird undercurrent in a lot in various parts of Star Wars, even with Ray and so on and so yeah, forth. Yeah, you don't get and to choose Anakin. your own family. Yeah, exactly. That's this constant in Star Wars that you don't get to choose your family. And in this case, I mean, he was really, he was adopted, but he was kind of in a quite literal sense kidnapped. (laughs) He was saved from death. Yeah. He was going to be killed by Republic troops, not Imperial troops, but Republic troops. And so these two explorers, to save him, tranquilize him, and take him away from where he was. Oh, that's right. Yeah, because it was not ravaged by the Empire. It was ravaged by the Republic. Yeah, and so and oh, yeah, this yeah, is yeah. very, very crucial for libertarians and political people to remember is that mm-hmm. in Rogue One, Cassian tells us the most important thing about his story, which is that he was a separatist. Yeah. He was raised and bred and born a separatist to separatist family and the separatist cause. He did not ever believe in the Republic. Mm-hmm. And so when he says that I've been fighting since I was like seven or eight years old, he's been fighting clone troopers and then stormtroopers. And to him, they're all the same right. thing. And so for all of us out there kind of concerned with our own real world empire situation and all of that kind of stuff, like the acknowledgement that this character actually has a fully rounded view of the empire, which is that the Republic was the same thing, just called a different thing. That's really, really interesting. And so we now get to see that play out. Yeah, that, I'd kind of forgotten that particular sub-point that he says in Rogue One, yeah, that he's always been a separatist. Obviously, Andor the show expands upon this, but when we meet him, even as a young man in the show, he's not really an 
activist per se. Like he's not part of the rebellion yet. He's just a thief and he's, well, he's resisting, but it's more for the purpose of trying to get away. Yeah, he's trying to survive yeah. and, you know, he's just sort of cobbling together life. Like he hates the empire and, you know, yeah. he takes umbrage at anybody who says that he's not a believer because he's like, you know, I steal from the empire every day because yeah. I hate them. I spit in their food. Yeah. But he's mostly just out there for survival and he hasn't and, really come across the rebellion in a way that has inspired him before. And one of the things that we get to see in Andor is that he does meet some rebels and a particular rebel named Nemec who mm-hmm. is writing a manifesto, is writing like the defining text of rebellion against the empire. And he meets this kid and it really changes his life and direction about not just like spitting in the empire's food and stealing from them, but like really believing in the cause of freedom and rebellion against this machine. And he does find his tribe. He finds his people, which end up being the rebels that we know from Rogue One and the rebel alliance that we know from the original films. And that's not to say that he didn't have choices. There's also a very radical fringe, and I would argue evil, division of the rebel cause led by Saw Gerrera. They're called Saw Gerrera's partisans. Yeah. They are violent. They're Antifa in space. They're not <laughs> they're not, space. <laughs> they're not rooted in any sort of like cause beyond like just liberationism and violence. Not a good bunch, but he doesn't go that way. He does go the way of like a principled cause. He never actually comes across Saw, but I mean that's kind of there's all these interconnected pieces here. But man, you bring up Nimic. Nimic is such a great character. I love him to death. I just about I just was so angry when he got, you know, banged up and I know, right? I was just so unhappy with that. <laughs> and it just shows that the writing is so good because they got me invested in the character in like barely two episodes. Mm-hmm. I just, just love the dude. And he walks away, Cassian that is, with Nimic's manifesto. And we don't really get a lot of what's in it until really the last episode. But yes. one of the, mm-hmm. the little mini diatribe that happens and you could call it the remember this speech is what at least that's what I'm gonna call it. Remember this. Freedom is a pure idea. Yeah. If, and he says, like, you know, oppression, what's the exact verb? He says like, it's he says oppression is, is unnatural. It's unnatural, unnatural. it's brittle. He says, remember this, the imperial need for control is so desperate because it is so unnatural. He says yes. tyranny requires constant effort. It breaks, it leaks, authority is brittle. It is the mask of fear. And you hear that in the show and you're just like, oh my gosh, this is exactly what needs to be said. It is. And and Norm, I was, while this episode was out and while I was watching this episode was the same time that the white paper protests were beginning in China. Oh, yeah. And, you know, the the white paper protests that nobody's talking about them anymore. So I imagine that they've died out or been put down in China. But... You know, there was an outburst of dissent in China that was quite notable in the past yeah. month or two. And at the same time that this is happening very spontaneously, you've got this episode of Andor where he points out that freedom is, quote, a pure idea. It occurs mm-hmm. spontaneously and without instruction. Random acts of insurrection are, are happening all occurring. the time. Yeah. And Nimic's manifesto is just all about remembering that the empire 
is trying so hard to keep it all together. And the more they try, the more spontaneous acts of rebellion will become a cohesive form of rebellion. But you have to push and keep pushing the empire to make that mistake. And that's so crucial to remember because sometimes it's almost impossible for libertarians to just remember that you know, you're not going to be able to just eliminate this in one fell swoop. All of the state oppression that is seen today. You can't do it. It's not something that happens overnight. And it's not something that you can manufacture in one of the think tanks on K Street in D.C. I mean, I I really struggle with this because I'm sort of a professional libertarian. I've (laughs) bounced around these 501c3s and c4s that sort of populate our movements and our conferences. And I, I believe very much in them. But every quarter or every other year, you're pulled into a big strategy meeting about how we're going to make liberty win. <laughs> what are we going to do that you know really ignites a movement or a cause across the country? And I you can't re- manufacture it though. Right. <laughs> and, and, and this is it. And this is like the conceit of the entire thing is like this bit from Andor, this bit from Nemec, this whole thing that it does occur spontaneously and without instruction you cannot manufacture a movement yeah. <laughs> in these think tanks. But you can basically lay the intellectual framework that provides language for when those movements do spontaneously arise. Like yeah. basically, you have to do the work of providing, I think like words that work when mm-hmm. the moment is right, when like the government oversteps just a bit too much. And I think you did see this with yeah. lockdown protests. Oh, yeah, for you know, sure. It was definitely like the dam springing a leak, but it didn't break. <laughs> yeah. But the thing that did leak and break, per se, was trust. And that's what we're continuing to see is like that erosion of trust from the powers that be and realizing that there is something more to be said than just whatever the government has in store for us. That's right. Nimic's manifesto is just like, I, I want to just get the whole thing. Well, yeah, and I'm kind of wondering how long it takes for them to turn it into some kind of merchandising opportunity. Like, like that would be a really great product for Galaxy's Edge at Disney in Anaheim (laughs) or Orlando. I I mean, seriously, because like the gift shop, it's an in-universe gift shop at Disney where the items that are on sale in there are meant to be like real artifacts. So if I could like go into that gift shop and buy Nemec's manifesto, <laughs> I 100% would. I think that's, yeah, it's on the docket. <laughs> There's a video you should watch that I just posted on my Twitter at Stephen underscore Kent 89 oh. about Nemec and the fact that Star Wars left-wingers have been claiming him as a Marxist. Oh my and gosh, seriously? No, <laughs> it's exhausting. It's probably the most aggravating thing that I have seen in Star Wars fandom discussion is when Nemec and his character was debuted and his manifesto kind of became known to fans. Uh Marxist Twitter basically is like made him their hero. Oh my gosh. And (laughs) it has driven me to the point of near insanity because there's absolutely no evidence for this. Sounds like we need to write a response essay. Yeah, I've (laughs) been wanting to write a response essay because... Nemec speaks as a character in Andor, a very raw, kind of generic language of enlightenment freedom. Yeah. With no mention of any Marxist principles besides freedom is good. 
Yeah. <laughs> Which, you know, Marxists believe in a certain kind of freedom as well. But, you know, the thing about our left-wing friends is that anytime somebody is against the system as it exists and says the word freedom, they think that they're a Marxist. They're <laughs> 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 you know, like, actually, we're here too. Yeah. Yeah. And libertarians waving from the side, like, hey, yeah. you know, we're over here. <laughs> said nothing about economics or the modes yeah. of production or exploitation and workers and their employers. It was just like no evidence for that claim and it's been driving yeah. me nuts. But yeah. Nemec is a wonderful sort of, I think, generic enlightenment thinker for Star Wars. The last thing he says, where he says, remember this, and this is actually like kind of folds into the next part of the story, right? He says, remember this, try. Try. And that's mm-hmm. like this little bit and, and that's the moment that Cassian just walks out and because he's about to go try something. <laughs> mm-hmm. And he will keep trying. Yeah. It's interesting. I don't know if there's any significance to, um, and maybe this is tangent, but he leaves, Cassian leaves the book there. Like he wants somebody else to discover it, I guess. I don't know if you picked up on that or I don't know why that is, but I think that's the only interpretive point. Where, that did, I, he, where did he leave the book? In his little ship that he, you know, oh, he's okay. had his, okay. his little hideaway <laughs> location. On yeah, the, I'm the super junkyard. curious if, I think Nimic's manifesto is going to come back in season yeah. two. I'm wondering and curious if it's going to find its way into the hands of someone like Mon Mothma, yeah, who is going to become the intellectual leader of the Rebel Alliance, but currently she's kind of boxed in and afraid yeah. on Coruscant, and she doesn't know how to lead. She's mostly still afraid for her own skin, which is understandable. Nobody wants to get thrown in the gulag. So I'm curious if this finds its way to her because Mon Mothma does write the document, I think, called the Declaration of Rebellion. Okay. I'm probably botching the name of that, but it is canon. Mon Mothma really does write a document that is kind of the Declaration of Independence, and it's sort of eerily similar (laughs) to the Declaration of Independence. It's been mentioned in a couple of different books. You can find it on Wikipedia. Yeah. You can look up Mon Mothma Declaration Rebellion. You can find it and read it, but... I think that a lot of it might end up getting inspired by the writings of Nemec because, you know, that's what manifestos do. They kind of, they find they their... take a life of their own. Yeah, they find their audience. And really, when you have an amazing writer or public intellectual or thinker, they may not inspire a movement, but they might inspire the right one person who yeah. that person inspires a movement. And I think that person's Mon Mothma. <laughs> well... Mom Mothma, she shows up in Rogue One, of course. Mm-hmm. And then also, interestingly, she actually, of course, has an appearance in the animated show Rebels. Yeah. Which is where she really kind of makes the transition from being the senator to the rebel yeah. leader. Yeah. She has to formally defect and disappear. Yeah. 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 But back to Andor, because <laughs> the next thing, the, oh my gosh, then you get maybe the second best speech. I don't know, maybe it is the best speech that comes up during the funeral procession. And Cassian's mother, or, well, adoptive mother, Marva, who is the greatest character. I just love her. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. She's so wonderful in the entire show. And there's this great little line, actually, that just kind of emphasizing just how her value in the show is after when Cassian is rescuing Bix. And Bix says something like, you know, did you, uh, Marva's gone or something, or did you see Marva? And Cassian just looks down at her and is just like, wasn't she great? 
And it's like, yes, she was. It was almost like a summation of the show right there. It's like, mm-hmm. oh man, she was great. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I just absolutely love that. But her great speech, character. her speech though, was just like, you had to kind of read into it a little bit because it's obviously referring to kind of shared culture stuff on Ferrix. This aspect of when someone dies, they kind of record this prior to their passing in order to lift others is mm-hmm. the words that are used there. But even that is just like, it's so different than what we experience often. It's just, but it's so interesting. And it ends up, you know, with this injunction that my brothers and sisters are making up the words there, but it's like, we've been sleeping. Yep. We've been sleeping. And I'm calling you to wake up. And then you're saying like, what have you been sleeping around? Or what have, what have you been asleep to? Well, all these little intrusions. And we previously in the show kind of saw how the Empire plans that out. They did it on the planet where they performed the heist. They literally explained it. <laughs> and then what we're going to do is we're going to, you know, the Empire's going to go in and we're going to displace people. We're going to disrupt their customs. We're going to try and distract them with bread and circuses, essentially. Mm-hmm. And then eventually they're not going to know that something's been happening. Who they are anymore. And they're going to forget yeah. who they are. And so Marva basically, she's awake to that. She's figured it out. She figured out the plan. And is now telling people, like, don't let them do this. And if I were to have any other wish for you, or I would you'd wake up every morning and fight these bastards, as she says. Well, and, and basically the thing that ties Marva and Nemec together in their sort of, their speeches that they both give is, mm-hmm. we, talk, we already talked about Nemec. I guess we didn't talk about the bit where he's talking about consumerism and yeah. self-reliance. Yeah. But Marva is saying that they've been sleeping. They've basically been receiving the comforts and benefits of imperial security. And they've kind of allowed all of this encroachment on their culture and way of life mm-hmm. because it's convenient. And she's saying like, oh, no, we can't be spoon-fed to sleep here. Like, we actually have to fight back. The thing that ties them both together is sort of accommodating encroachment on way of life because you get something in return. You get more comforts, you get more security. Like Because this is how the totalitarians take over your life. They offer you peace, they offer you security, financial benefit, all that kind of stuff. And if you actually want to be free, that might actually mean discomfort. It might actually mean living off of the grid. It might mean that like Nimic says, that you might need to use a starship navigator that doesn't chart the course for you, but you might actually have to learn how to manually navigate your way around the galaxy, even though it's harder, even though it is inconvenient. It's the only way you can truly be free. It's one of my favorite bits that Nimic is talking about. It's like Google Maps, right? Yeah. If you train an entire generation to only know how to get around their neighborhood or their country with the help of Google Maps, and nobody knows how to get anywhere. Like, God, I couldn't reach my mother in North Carolina without Google Maps. And then you turn Google Maps off, then people people are are like, their freedom of movement is restricted. But Mm -hmm. if you actually have an entire generation of people who know how to use a map... Yeah, <laughs> then you're still free. And that was like one of the points that Nimic makes about starships. And it's kind of what Marv is saying as well. And we need to remember that. And there's, of course, as always is the case, the actors in these things are left-wing. The actors in these series are liberal or progressive people. And so when they're asked about these scenes and they're asked about these dialogues, they sort of talk about it as a left-winger. 
and sort of claim the mantle of virtue and those ideas. But at the same time, a lot of fans of Star Wars and lovers of liberty know that what the culture is doing to us, what Hollywood is doing to us at all times, is partially trying to lull us into sleep. Yeah. And to spoon feed us entertainment while our freedoms vanish. Like all this, all the irony of this stuff, like that is what is happening. And even from Hollywood sort of dismantling and taking down our heroes and our culture mm-hmm. from our founders, from our nation's heroes to Luke Skywalker in The Last Jedi. And I, yep. I don't feel super strongly about this, but a lot of fans do that like Luke was taken down a peg oh, in yeah. the sequel trilogy. And you have to think about, again, like Marva is saying here, like for a reason, this is happening. Because you sort of just start to forget who you are and what you believe in. And they're trying to change the culture. And we just need to be aware of that and not be asleep at the wheel. Yeah. I think that's a great kind of place to end up here because that's kind of the ultimate message here is like, Andor, in a sense, is don't fall asleep. And by the end of it, Cassian is fully awake. He's like totally on board. He's ready to move. And that sort of awakening in his own mind, like the real force awakens here. That's what is happening. (laughs) Oh, man. And I absolutely love the show. And definitely, of course, we're obviously recommending it. But hopefully you haven't been listening to this whole thing, getting it all spoiled before you've gone and listened to it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And I hope for everybody who's listening to this and taking the recommendation for Andor, the benefit I think the fun of How the Force Can Fix the World, my my book mm-hmm. that we kind of opened up by talking about is that I don't do film criticism in How the Force Can Fix the World. I approach it as a just pure Star Wars fan, meaning I take episodes one through nine seriously with respect. And I kind of look at it all as the text, as the canon, as the sacred texts. <laughs> and I try to unpack it and mine all of it for wisdom on how we can be more free, more happy, and be better people. So you're not going to be getting from me, you know, like snide remarks about any of the movies or this movie's good and this one was bad. It's just going to be sort of looking at them as they are and finding wisdom and good things in all of it. And I think that there's something to be said for that as well. Just for sure. Don't be asleep at the wheel, but also like enjoy, enjoy, enjoy yeah. life. And <laughs> it's okay to enjoy stories and have a childlike sense of wonder about some things. Yeah, for sure. And so I, I hope that everybody does get a, a kick out of it and go pick it up. It's fun to read. Do it. Well, before we cut off here, Stephen, do you have any kind of last words and like kind of what's next for you and are Beltway Banthas coming back or what's next on your on your agenda here? That has been requested by some people on the yeah. internet. I don't know. I'm sort of at a weird crossroads in my life where I want to figure out like, do I want to write another book? And I, I have an idea in mind. It's not Star Wars related. But then I also am still just rolling off of how much I love talking about this. I I, yeah. I love Star Wars and I love freedom and liberty. And I just, I want to do more to advance and tie those things together. But I'm not really sure how. So, you know, I'm always looking for collaborators out there who have ideas or might want to tell me uh, something I should try out. So feel free to reach out anytime. I'm on Twitter at Stephen underscore Kent 89. That's Stephen with a PH underscore Kent 89. I'm also on Substack. My Substack is called This Is The Way. 
uh, that makes sense. <laughs> that makes sense, of course. So you can find yeah. me on Substack at This Is The Way. And Excellent. I'd love to talk to you. Oh, man. Well, thank you so much, Stephen, for being here. We really appreciate it. And I think that we're going to call it a day. We'll keep ourselves under an hour here. <laughs> Fight but, the empire. That's yep, the takeaway. <laughs> that's the takeaway. <laughs> and try. Remember, try. <laughs> so thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. Thank you.